the name of our Savior. Amen. Well, we are back in Ephesians uh, this morning, so if you could look in chapter 4, it's where we're going to return to in our journey through Ephesians. Recently, my son and I have been, uh, we just finished watching a fascinating series on World War II. It was a long documentary, uh, several hours of uh, footage. And it was fascinating not only because of the, uh, some of the, the, the rare film that, that they had regarding many of the battles that were fought on sea, land, and air, but also it was an interesting series because it was done in the early 70s. And so many of the key figures who had uh, been through World War II, were able, they were able to interview, including some that were actually in uh, Hitler's bunker right before he committed suicide. Uh, so very interesting watching some of these accounts. And also, too, with any war documentary, it's very sobering because they often will show the destruction and devastation that took place from bombed-out cities, starvation, disease, and the dead, and so many scenes of the dead. You know, some estimate that nearly 25 million soldiers died in World War II. And one thing I, I didn't realize until watching the series was that more than twice as many civilians died as a result of the war. Uh, in fact, Poland lost nearly 16% of its total population from World War II. World War II claimed over 65 million lives, uh, many millions more who were ma- maimed or wounded. And after seeing scene after terrible scene from this documentary, the devastation, the death, it, it hit me in a, in a more profound way. This is what sin has brought us. You know, war, of anything else, war is really a graphic picture of what sin produces. Ultimately, sin divides, separates, and severs. Right? Sin not only separated man from God, but man from one another. Right? When Adam sinned in the garden, what was the first thing he did? He ran. You remember Cain? Because of jealousy, he declared the first war in human history murdering his own brother in a field in cold blood. And James 4.1 describes this dividing effect of sin when James asks the question, what is the source of conflicts and quarrels among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You envy and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James describes there what sin is, really. Sin divides, and, and that's because ultimately sin is the worship of self, is it not? It's the exaltation of self over God and everyone else. And so, by its very nature, it's hostile to any who would get in the way. If you are in my way and you're not allowing me to get what I want, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And you do the same thing, right? That's what James is describing there. Two people who are worshiping themselves. And if anything defines the human existence, it is a conflict and contention. It's struggle and separation. It's division and disunity. And in a sense, that is essentially what the gospel corrects. The gospel corrects what sin had destroyed. Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, we, we saw that where it describes Jesus is our peace, right? And how he had brought all believers, made all believers into one new man, establishing peace. And how he reconciled all believers into one body to God through the cross. It is the gospel that restores true harmony. It is the gospel that brings unity, that brings oneness, that brings the togetherness which sin 
had severed and destroyed. And it brings that unity not only between God and man, but as we've seen earlier in Ephesians, between one another. Living out this reality is now where Paul turns his attention in chapter 4, where he urges us, as we saw before, to, to walk in a manner worthy of his calling. And that is to, to have what we do match or be balanced with who we are. Paul gave the indicative in the first half of his letter, as we talked about previously, that who we are in Christ, and he describes that in chapters 1 to 3, and then he moves from that to the imperative, to the commands, to the what do we do with who we are? How are we to live? How are we to respond? So in chapters 4 to 6, he gives 40 commands, specific instructions of what that response should look like, of how our calling should be matched with our conduct. A question came to my mind, if I were Paul, where would I start? How about you? If you were Paul, and you know, all these different things that are probably going on in his mind as to how we are to respond to the gospel, where would you start? Would it be with evangelism, Bible reading, prayer, purity, marriage, church participation, conflict, serving? Where would you begin? What would you see as most important to focus on as you consider in giving this instruction and in, in how we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ. Well, let's look at Ephesians 4.1, and we will see where Paul began, what he considered as of greatest importance. And as we do that, I would again ask you to please stand in honor of God's word as we read it together. Ephesians 4, I'll be beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the quipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You may be seated. Thank you. So where does Paul begin? What is it that demands our attention in Paul's mind as the first thing that he would focus on? What is it to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of grace? It is to walk in unity. Unity in the body of Christ is what first comes to Paul's mind. That word unity is repeated here twice in verse 3 and verse 13. And, and that word uh, in the Greek is actually the only time it appears in the New Testament in that form. 
Unity is also seen in the repetition of the word one, especially in verses four to six, where seven different times he says one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. The theme of unity is also seen in these first 16 verses in the fact that the church is referred to as a body. In fact, I read those 16 verses because they all form one unit. They all are centered around one idea. They all focus our attention on the fact that we need to be a unified body. It is the first thing in the response section of Paul's letter that he draws our attention to. It's all about our identity, not as a group of separate individuals, but as parts of a whole. And Paul's not here simply reiterating what he talked about back in chapter 2. You remember there when we looked at uh, who we are as one living entity, that we're all built together in one dwelling of God and the Spirit, that we all have equal access to God by the Spirit. Paul's not just reiterating that point of who we are as believers as one body, but here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, he's talking about how we need to function as one body. So he moves the attention from from our being as one to our need to live that out. And the main point of this section I see is in verse 3 where he says, we are to be diligent to preserve or maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I think Paul focuses first on unity in the body of Christ because it isn't the cultivation of our individual walk with the Lord that is most important in living out the Christian life. Let me say that again. It isn't the cultivation of your individual relationship with Christ that is of first importance when you become a Christian. It is the unity of God's people in the body of Christ which is the greater concern. Yes, we do have an individual relationship before God. We do stand before Him as individuals accountable for our sin. But let us not miss the point that, that Paul here focuses not on our individual walk, but in our communal walk, our walk as a body together as one. We're to be diligent, which means to, to make every effort to zealously endeavor or pursue this unity. And we can't overlook the fact that Paul is starting with our unity as the first consideration in having our conduct be consistent with our calling. The first response of the gospel is unity. Again, he doesn't start with purity or or holiness or marriage or money or Bible reading or prayer. All of those, of course, are important and all are necessary. And he will get to those things. But again, he focuses on unity. And it made me ask myself this question. Does that reflect my priority? How about you? Does that reflect your priority as we gather together? I, I think, you know, to be honest, I think we give little attention to this. We really have no clue just how important unity is to God. Unity in His body. Unity in the church. I think at times, if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, how much is it considering your mind when you come on Sunday morning, you gather with the saints... I think we have a priority. Oh, I've got to make sure I get there. A priority to, you know, I want to serve perhaps or, or to make sure I'm giving. But what about unity? What active pursuit in your mind and heart is there in terms of prioritizing unity with the body? I want you to look at John 17 for a minute and how it expresses the importance of unity to God. You remember what was prominent in the mind and heart of Jesus on that night just before 
He was to sacrifice himself on the cross. What was it that was important to him? So important that they, uh, it was part of the, among the last things that he prayed to the Father before going to the garden. Well, fortunately, John the Apostle was there and he wrote down the prayer that God the Son was giving to God the Father on that night. John 17 will begin in verse 20 and look to see what it was that was important to Jesus. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, he's referring to the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that is us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Folks, what was Jesus most concerned about here? What was it that mattered so much to him as to be among the final words on that evening just before the cross? Oh, Father, may they be one. May they be perfected in unity. May they be matured into one. Think about that. Of all the things Jesus focused his attention on, he wanted to eradicate the division and the separation, the disharmony and the destruction of relationships that our sin has brought about. Jesus wanted to destroy our conflict, to annihilate our disunity. That was what was on his heart. Jesus, the great reconciler, the great peacemaker, the great unifier, wanted to restore us not only to God, but to each other. And he went to the cross less than 24 hours later to demonstrate just how important that was to him. You see how significant unity is to God? Paul did. Paul talked about it not only in these first 16 verses of chapter 4, but if if we look at the whole letter to the Ephesians, this theme of unity and oneness actually permeates and runs through the entire letter. That word one that I mentioned earlier, he uses that word 14 times within this letter. He talks about the church as a body at least nine times throughout this letter. He uses that now famous preposition soon that means with or together. He attaches that preposition to 14 words within this letter. There's a message Paul wanted to send. And I find it interesting that in a letter that is so focused on salvation, that that talks so much about the intricacies of the work of the Trinity and bringing salvation to us, I find it interesting that with all of that, there is such a thrust and an emphasis on unity within this same letter. We have to stop confining salvation to solely an individual matter. Again, yes, we stand individually accountable before God, but in a sense, we've been given a group rate in our salvation. That we've been saved into a community, into a fellowship, into a group, into one body, all intertwined with God and one another. I've said this a lot as we've gone through Ephesians, because Paul says this a lot as he's written out this letter. Such an important issue such an important concept and until we give unity a priority we're quenching the work of god in us until unity becomes so important to us that that is a focus and a pursuit we are holding god back from the work he would do in us because he created and saved us to be one body 
But we've been so indoctrinated in the concept of individualism for so long in our culture, I'm afraid we really don't know where to start. What does that look like? And it's my desire and prayer that God would do a work in us, that He would open our eyes to the magnitude of not only knowing who we are as one, but living that out. Just as Jesus prayed, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. May the Holy Spirit help us understand that. May the Holy Spirit work in us so that that becomes the cry of our own hearts as well, that that our prayer and our focus and our action would be consistent with what Jesus prayed that night. And with that, I'd like to pray right now, just that, that God would do that work in us as we move through His Word more. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice and your prayer on our behalf. And and Father, I would ask you that you would please, by your Spirit, work in our body, work within us here at Calvary, work within the churches in our community. Oh, Father, that we may be one, that we may uh, live out what you have accomplished through your Spirit. Help us now as we go through the remainder of our time together this morning just to understand better what unity is, to understand better what gets in the way of that and how we may, Lord, as a body, keep, maintain, preserve the unity that you have brought about. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we need to recognize uh, this unity isn't something that we create. It's not something that we generate. It's something that has already taken place. Paul says here that we are to maintain, that is to keep or or preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That tells us that when we are saved and we're brought into the body, we're already one. We're already unified. The issue is whether or not we preserve and maintain and keep that or whether we destroy it. It is the unity of the Spirit that we are to preserve The question is, how do we do that? How do we diligently keep that unity? How do we diligently maintain it? And that's the focus here of these first 16 verses in chapter 4, where Paul lays out some uh, three different truths that will motivate us to pursue unity, to to maintain it, to keep it. The first is given in verses 1 to 3, and that is the uh, attitude or the attributes of unity. The basis of unity is in verses 4 to 6, and then the provision for unity in verses 7 through 16. And Paul gives these truths again to to motivate us, and he begins with describing the attributes of unity. What are the attitudinal foundations of pursuing, of maintaining unity in our body? Look back at verse 2 with me, and we see that Paul says, We walk in a manner worthy of the gospel with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance or forbearance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here Paul describes those necessary or or foundational qualities that are needed to preserve unity. And it's interesting, Paul focuses here first not on conduct, but on character, right? He initially describes attitudes rather than action. In order to be unified on the outside... Work has to be done on the inside. And so as we are to consider how to pursue unity with one another, heart surgery needs to be performed in each one of us. And so Paul takes out his scalpel and he he begins to, to cut open and to reveal and identify what is needed within our own hearts in order to be this unified body. And what is the first attitude? What's the first thing Paul 
draws attention to? What is the foundational quality or trait that must be cultivated in the heart for unity to be preserved? What is it? Humility. Humility. Ouch. Right? Walking the worthy walk starts with humility. And because of its importance, because this is really the foundational attribute and quality, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at that attribute, talking about it and and seeing how we can walk with all humility. We'll consider the appeal of humility, the problem of pride, and then the path to humility as we look at this together. Greek word for humility here carries the idea of lowliness of mind. And it's interesting to note this word is used seven times in the New Testament. But if we look at Greek literature before New Testament times, we do not find this form of the word. It was likely coined by believers. And it was a term that was not looked upon with favor by the culture around Christianity. The Greeks and Romans saw humility as something not to be cherished, but to be despised. In fact, Epictetus, who's a philosopher in the apostolic era, he, uh, in describing this word, he said, it's the first among the qualities not to be commended. It's servile, it's shameful, it's beneath the dignity of an enlightened man, it's weak. Not much has changed, has it? Our world today is humility valued and cherished and pursued as a, as a crowning attribute. I mean, some may give lip service to it, but, but that's not what's valued in our culture. What does God think about humility? Look at Isaiah 66 for a moment. One of my favorite passages that talks about God's perspective on those who are humble. What does he think about it? This last chapter in Isaiah gives a clear expression by God himself of how he sees humility. Isaiah 66, we'll be looking at verse 1. God's word spoken through Isaiah says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Before looking at the next verse, what, what is it that God draws attention to here? He first is stating how exalted and high that he is and how the heavens are, are like a throne to him and the earth is just a footstool. That God is declaring His greatness and His majesty and how exalted He is over all of His creation. And He does that not just to show how far above us He is, but because of what He says next. That in, Despite the fact that He is so high above all of us, that He is so far uh, exalted over us like a, a mountain compared to a speck of dust. Despite that fact, there is something in us, in His creation, that draws His attention. Something that He is attracted to. In us. Verse 2, he says, But to this one I will look. This is the person that will draw my attention from my throne to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. What a statement. Right? It's not the mighty or the proud or the, the high achievers that appeal to God, it is the one who is low. And needy, the one who Jesus described in the Beatitudes as poor in spirit, the one who reveres God's word. That is the one that God is attracted to. That is the one that, as he scans the earth, draws his attention, draws his gauge, is receiving his favor. Because that's the idea here. It's not just merely that it draws his attention to the one he will look, it's the one who will he will grant favor upon. It's the one he looks at with favor. 
First Peter 5, 5 says, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God gives grace, favor, attention to the humble. And notice in that statement by Peter, he commands us to clothe ourselves in humility, which is a great word picture. Right When we look around this room, we see that all of us are clothed. That's the primary thing that we see from one another is our clothing. And Peter says humility should be such a part of your character. It's as if when a person looks at you, that's all they see. They see humility from you. This attribute of lowliness of mind, of self-denial, of, of humbling oneself, it is, it is the critical and crucial component in achieving unity in our body. Philippians 2, Paul describes that. He, he mentions in chapter 2, verse 1, if therefore, if any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by, listen, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul doing there. He's calling us again to unity. If you're saved, if you know him, if God is at work in your life, then be one, have the same love, have the same unity, be unified, have the same purpose. And then Paul goes on to describe just how that impossible event would take place. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That is the connection. In order to achieve the unity that Paul describes, we have to be, we must be humble. We must, as Paul said, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves. That's the only way that unity is going to happen here. That's the only way that we are going to live out that oneness that God's Spirit has brought about. That is if... We are humble when we put each other above ourselves. And I don't have to tell you that that is easier said than done, right? I mean, what, what gets in the way of that? What is a hindrance to this humility that Paul's talking about? What is it that destroys unity in our body? Pride and selfishness, right? Pride is the number one en- enemy of unity. Pride kills Unity. Pride is like a fertilizer that, that when spread about, it causes dissension to blossom and flourish. Isn't that what James described in James 4.1? We're talking, what, what's the source of our conflicts? What's the source of our fighting, our disunity, our disharmony? Isn't it you? Isn't it your desires? When you have one person whose main desire is to worship themselves, interacting with another person whose main desire is to worship themselves, what's going to happen? Fights, quarrels, conflict, disunity, sin that separates. Selfish pride destroys harmony. It's the root of division. And there's one example I want uh, to show you from uh, Luke 22. So if you could turn there with me. Luke 22, this is when the disciples were with Jesus in the upper room the night before Jesus' death on the cross. It's the last meal that they would share together. It's a night when Jesus was very sober. It was a night, remember, he was troubled, it says in John. He was troubled in spirit. He was considering and thinking about what was about to happen to him. It was a 
Special time, though, as well. It was a time where they could honor the one who was soon to be the sacrificial lamb. And, and as such, Jesus then uh, brought in a ceremony to commemorate his sacrifice, a ceremony that we celebrate each month. It is there in that upper room that they took the first communion together, the Lord's Supper. And Luke twenty-two fourteen 14 describes this event. Let's start there. Verse 14 of chapter 22. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after they'd eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is a new covenant in my blood. But, but behold, the, one, the hand excuse me, of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there also arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. We'll stop there. That last verse really sticks out, doesn't it? I mean, consider the the tone and the atmosphere of that evening as they gather together. Again, Jesus is very uh, somber. Troubled in heart, troubled in spirit. He is there uh, desiring fellowship and encouragement from his disciples. He ends up taking three of them later to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him. And here in this, this environment, in this circumstance, he introduces a memorial to honor the sacrifice that he is about to make. And here on the most somber of nights, the, the most serious of occasions, the most sacred night actually that had yet existed in human history, the night before our Lord would sacrifice Himself. Here in the midst of all of this, an argument breaks out. Over what? Who's the most important? Who's the greatest? Who is the the chief here? I mean, are you kidding me? In that environment, imagine there's an argument, there's disunity with the Son of God sitting there about to partake, about to go through the most torturous of events, a night that's to be in honor of him, and these guys are bickering about who is greater than the other. Unbelievable. And we aren't told the specifics about the conflict. It it may have been over the fact that Jesus made that statement about the one that would betray him, and they're thinking, I'd never do that. You might do that. I'd never do that. You, You probably would, right? It may have been that. It may have been the seating arrangement around the table. We know that that was an important thing in the Jewish culture, where who you were sitting next to, and if you were near to the person of honor or not. We're not sure the, the cause necessarily of their bickering. But whatever the reason, their pride bought, brought disunity on the most sacred of nights. Their selfishness led to a very uncomfortable communion. I mean, imagine if we, as we're taking communion together and we've just sung about the Lord Jesus and all of a sudden Dave over here stands up and says, you know, I'm pretty important. I should be up here serving the elements. And then Bob starts arguing with him. No, no, no. I've been at the church longer than you, Dave. I should be here. And Michael says, no, I'm taller than both of you guys. I should be up here. And we start arguing with each other right in the middle of communion. They did it with Jesus in the room with them. 
That tells us just how divisive and reckless and terrible pride is. That it would take that sacred night and ruin it. And before we get too critical of these guys, right? We need to confess that that same monster of pride resides in us. C.S. Lewis said, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. That's really what pride is. It's the lifting of oneself. It's the exalting of oneself over others. In fact, it's interesting if you look at uh, the Old Testament, uh, words that are often translated as pride and haughtiness are actually words that are literally meaning high or lofty. Or the stretching of the neck is one word picture that's used to describe pride. Proverbs sixteen eighteen, the uh, pride, the word for height, goes before destruction, and a haughty or literally high spirit before stumbling. Proverbs twenty one four, haughty or lofty eyes, and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. That's what pride does, right? It it raises itself above others. I mean, who, what you know, pride's all about who in the end? Who? Me, myself, and I, right? In fact, there's, I don't think it's an accident that I is the center of pride. P-R-I-D-E. That is all what it's all about, isn't it? It's about me. And God has very strong feelings about pride. God has something to say about pride. Proverbs 16.5, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Or in Proverbs 6.16, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. And guess which one is first on the list? Haughty or raised eyes. Pride's an abomination to God. That's a good King James word, isn't it? Abomination! You know, but it simply means detestable, loathsome, abhorrent. Probably the best translation is, you know that feeling that you get when you want to throw up? That's what abomination means. Our pride makes God want to throw up. He hates it. He despises it. He detests it. And the reason that God feels so strongly about pride is that ultimately it is self-worship. You know, if you want a definition of pride, that's probably the best one out there. Self-worship. It is the lifting of oneself, not only over others, but also over God. And that's why Thomas Watson said, pride seeks to un-God God. Wasn't that what Satan wanted? Isn't that what enticed Adam and Eve? Isn't that really what every sin is ultimately? That, that I want to do what I want. I want to determine my own destiny. I want to be God. I want to make the decisions about my life. I want to follow my own rules and rely on myself. I want. I, I demand. I deserve. And when we think of pride, I, I think a lot of times we picture it as this, you know, arrogant, boasting, loudmouth, kind of assertive person. That that's what pride looks like. And yes, that is pride. But that's not the only way that we exhibit pride. Pride is also very subtle. Pride is very smooth. Self-exaltation and self-worship comes out in a lot of different ways. Not just in the loud boasting or the the arrogance that we might see at times from from those who are famous or well-known. 
I want you to consider these other manifestations of pride before you think that pride isn't something that you struggle with. Maybe you're not one of those people that draws attention to yourself in a boastful way or an arrogant way. So maybe you think pride isn't something that's really a problem in your life. Yeah, I, I know I'm proud, but you know I'm not as proud as that guy. Listen to these other manifestations of pride. Being ungrateful. Complaining about others or about circumstances. Teasing others sarcastically or degrading others. Jealousy or coveting. Self-pity or depression come from pride. The response to not getting what you think you deserve. Being too concerned about what others think of you. Tom talked about that earlier in regards to flattery. Being unteachable or unwilling to accept criticism. Being defensive or shifting the blame when you've been rebuked. Impatience. Irritability. Anger towards others. Bitterness and unwillingness to forgive is pride. Unwillingness to serve others or to help. A lack of compassion or empathy towards others. Not asking for forgiveness or apologizing. Covering up your sins or faults or mistakes. Having no close relationships with others in the body comes from pride. A lack of prayer. Wanting to be in control. Talking too much rather than asking and listening. Racism, stereotyping others because of what you see or hear from them. These are all forms of pride. These are all rooted in self-worship. These are all ways that we declare that I am more important than you. I am more important than God. Pride is just as much expressed by the the person pouting in the corner because they didn't get their way as to the one standing before everybody and boasting aloud how great they are. It's the same degree of pride in both cases. In both situations in the end, these are people demanding to be exalted, to be given attention. And do you see your pride? It is there. I'm certain of that. I speak from experience. In fact, this week when I told my wife I was going to teach on humility today, she just smiled. (laughs) She knows what it's like to live with somebody who's proud. When was the last time that you really sat down and thought about how pride is manifested in your life? Does your pride concern you? Because it really should. If you think about it, pride is the most deadly enemy we have. Next to Satan, it is our greatest enemy. You know, when I was watching that World War II documentary, there was a lot of time spent and a lot of effort and money was put into trying to understand how the enemy was working. Spy planes and code breaking and reconnaissance missions. Lots of things were done to try to understand and determine and predict the actions of the enemy. How much do we do that with our pride? Do you really stop and consider what are the ways that it's manifested in your life? It is the greatest enemy next to Satan, not only for your own soul in terms of unity with God, but also unity within this body. Pride is our greatest enemy. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to battle it? Are we going to really think about it and understand this is something that seeks to destroy us? The only reason we're not uh, perfected in unity yet is the fact that our pride gets in the way. Just think about, think about that upper room, how different it would have been if those disciples had been humble, 
Think about how different our homes would be, how different we would be with one another if we were just dealing with our pride. It is a terrible, terrible enemy. And if we're to see that true harmony among us, if we're to see uh, preserving and keeping and maintain the unity of the Spirit, which He's brought about in the bond of peace, then we must remove pride from our midst. And I'd ask you to think about, really and honestly, are you committed to that? I know we know pride's a bad thing. I know we know pride is something we need to deal with. But what action are you taking to deal with your pride? That's the question we have to answer is how. Someone once said, no one ever choked to death swallowing his pride. But anyone that's made a serious attempt at battling pride knows that it sure feels like that, doesn't it? Pride is difficult. It is insidious. It is a major challenge. And that's because, you know, ultimately that self-worship will drive anything away that's going to seek to deny self-worship. Pride has a huge protective mechanism within it. That if anything done to try to attack and deal with pride will be responded to. In fact, the Bible talks about how we are, pride deceives our own hearts. It's a very difficult enemy. So just how do we purge the pride that resides within our hearts? Is it simply just swallowing it, just sucking it in? Is it beating ourselves into submission? You know, some have tried that. There have been many in history who recognize the, how terrible pride is and want to deal with it in their lives. And so they've done things like denying themselves food or, or sleep or deprive themselves of relationships. Or, or some have literally beat themselves or stabbed or tortured themselves in order to cause their, themselves to submit and to be humble. Others have uh, berated themselves verbally and, and written and spoken just how low and worthless they are, trying to degrade themselves as if you know, they would think that would be what would humble them. And what's interesting or ironic about all those approaches is actually those approaches are motivated by pride. Because in those attempts, the person's saying, I can deal with pride on my own. I can conquer my pride. No, you can't. You can't. Our pride is something that God must do a work in to eliminate in our lives. We cannot conquer it on our own. We can be resolved and committed to deal with it, but it's going to be under the direction and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That was part of Paul's prayer earlier at the end of chapter 3, right? That the Spirit would empower us, would strengthen us in the inner man. One of the things is because Paul was just going to start talking about humility. And how in the world are we going to get there and deal with our pride unless it is the Holy Spirit that is working in us and empowering us to do that? The answer is dealing with pride is found in what Paul told the Philippians after saying they needed to be unified to pursue that unity that the Spirit has achieved. Back in Philippians 2, he said, again, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. And brothers and sisters, if we would see unity here within our body, within our community, within the body of Christ, humility is our only hope. And while pride ultimately is self-worship, we could define it that way. Humility could be defined simply as God-worship. Stuart Scott, in his book, From Pride to Humility, he defined humility as a focus on God and others, a pursuit of the recognition and the exaltation of God, and a desire to glorify and please God. 
In all things and by all things he is given. You see, humility in the end recognizes that God and and God alone is the one to be honored, the one to be revered, the one to be given attention for everything. One man said, The axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, and he used it. The moment he throws it aside, the axe becomes only old iron. May I never lose thought of sight of this. You see, pride is conquered only when we have a right understanding of God and an underdependence on God. And the path to true humility is, is, starts in our minds. It starts in our thinking. It starts in what we meditate or dwell upon. It starts in what we consider as important. And so for the remainder of our time together, I want to give you six truths that if you were study and meditate on them and ask God to give you understanding... They would cultivate humility within your heart. A humility that that God can only bring about through His Word. A humility that will preserve and maintain the unity that the Spirit has given in us. The first truth is to dwell on who God is. To dwell on who God is. The more we grasp the power and the majesty, the, the better picture or glimpse that we get of the greatness of God, the more humble we will be. It will be a natural response. I remember when I was a young boy, uh, my parents were on a trip to Denver, Colorado, and they took me to the Natural History Museum there. And as we were going through one of the hallways, there was this display of this huge polar bear, kind of in the, you know, nasty pose, right, like that. thing was like over 10 feet tall. Um, Must have weighed close to 2,000 pounds when it was alive. And that thing was just standing there menacing. I remember as a little guy walking up and just looking at that thing, and I felt pretty small and staring at that beast. Thankfully, it was stuffed. You know that if we were to get a picture of God like that, of who He really is, as a, as a massive, huge, and great, great person, Isaiah—not uh, Isaiah—the Israelites, excuse me—the Israelites got such, such, just such a glimpse of God when they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, as God had delivered the Ten Commandments to them, as He had verbally proclaimed the ten words to the people of Israel, and listen to what's described in their response as they are given this, this image and picture of God as He's speaking forth from, from the mountain. It says in Exodus 20, verse 18, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, You speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we'll die. Right, as they stood before that mountain, which earlier in chapter 19, it's also there earthquakes were going on as well. Smoke's coming from it. As God's speaking, it's trembling. There's lightning. They're getting a, a little glimpse and picture of the greatness and majesty of God. And what's their response? Is it pride? They think how great they are? Wow. This is God. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, God, but I'm, I'm not so bad myself, right? No, they're like, hey, Moses, <laughs> we don't even want to talk to him anymore. He scares us. He's too big. He's, he's huge. He's massive. You go talk to him. Right? They were humbled. They were scared. As God peeled back a little bit of who he was, it's like that big polar bear. It's like, wow, this is bigger than I realized. It produces humility when we consider the awesomeness of God. You remember Isaiah 
in a vision he had of God. And how did he respond when he had this vision of God and his throne and all that was going on around the Lord? And then he says, woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm undone. This is it. It's over for me. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was humbled when he got a picture of God. This was the prophet Isaiah. Psalm 145.3 declares, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. It's unfathomable. It can't be fully comprehended. That's how great God is. David wondered at the greatness of God in Psalm 139. Listen to what he said as he reflected on who God is. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before your hand, you laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. You see, notice David's response as he's reflecting on, on God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his sovereignty, his infinite nature. He's humbled. He said, this is amazing. God, I, I can't comprehend this. I can't grab this. I, it's too wonderful for me. And that's what we need. We need to dwell on who God is if we would see humility be cultivated in our hearts. Because the, the bigger we see God to be, then the smaller we see ourselves or really are. So spend some time. Study great passages on God, such as Daniel 4, Psalm 139, Psalm 145. These are texts which will expand in your mind and your understanding just how great God is. And then through that understanding, it will bring humility. It will bring humility. And secondly, humility is cultivated not only as we dwell on who God is, but as we dwell on who we are. You know, we often give God too little credit and think Him to be too small. By the same token, we often think ourselves to be too big. We often give ourselves too much credit. But we are utterly helpless creatures. Are we not? We're not as independent and strong as we like to think we are. Acts 17.25 describes that God gives to all people life and breath and all things. Colossians 1.17 says that Jesus himself is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds all things, the entire universe, by the word of his power. Right? Everything comes from God. Everything you're alive right now, you're breathing right now, you're, all your organs are functioning right now only because of God. Your job, your family, your home, your food, your provisions only because of God. The universe itself is kept from collapsing on itself, not because of gravity, not because of these Higgs boson particles that may have been recently discovered. That is not the source of power that holds the universe together, is it? God, only God. You and I have no more ability to sustain ourselves. The universe has no more ability to keep itself from collapsing and blowing apart than, say, an ant would to lift a Statue of Liberty. It's just not possible. We are completely and utterly dependent. We are weak and needy physically. And our spiritual situation is even more desperate, isn't it? You remember back in Ephesians 2, how did Paul describe our spiritual condition? Dead in sin, hopeless, apart from God, 
headed for hell, enslaved to Satan, lost. Paul said back there, or did he say, you know, because of our great insight and our ability that, you know what, I'm glad that we saw this and we were able to see through it and, and deal with it and now that we could save ourselves, right? It's a good thing we understood we were dead in sin because now I can, I can see that and I can save myself and deal with that sin, right? Right? No, right? <laughs> That's not the case. Let me be clear. Right? It was not anything that we were able to see or do that brought about our own salvation, was it? It's God alone who made us alive. It was God alone who rescued us. It's God alone who promises heaven. It is God alone who keeps us. None of that's dependent on us. We have no ability to save ourselves. We have no ability to secure our salvation. We have no ability even to live, spiritually or physically. We're utterly dependent on God. There's nothing we can do with our physical being or our spiritual soul to sustain us, to give us life, or to save us. That is something we need to think about because as we dwell on that truth, it's not for the purpose of just saying how low we are in a sense, but the purpose is so that we might see who we really are before God. And that is what will bring humility. When I see the world for what it really is, when I see the greatness and majesty of God, and when I see the fact that I'm an utterly dependent creature. A third thing we need to dwell on is Christ's example. Another time when the disciples were jockeying for position and arguing about who was going to be, who was the greatest, Jesus took them aside and he said this to them in Mark 10. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, or to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Lord Jesus Christ took the role of a servant Paul reminds us of that example in what is arguably the most profound passage about God in the entire Bible. It comes right after Paul's uh, injunction, his instruction to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind to regard one another as more important than yourselves. Think about that statement just by itself. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do nothing from selfishness, but with humility of mind. That's impossible. What's Paul asking there? He's saying to do the impossible, to kill your pride, to be humble all the time, to regard others as better than you, as more important than you, to look out more for their interest than your own. How in the world are we going to do that, Paul? What in the world is going to help us to be humble like that and to subdue that pride? Well, where does Paul turn our attention? Those of you that know that passage in Philippians 2, what is the next thing that Paul tells them in order to show them how? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There's that word again, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Paul says, hey, you need to pursue humility and do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And let me show you, look to Jesus. That's the answer. Look to his example. Consider what he did. Consider the greatest act of humility that ever took place in history. That is what will help you as you dwell on that truth. 
to be humble yourselves. How Jesus descended from the heights of glory to become a man, to become a servant, to become a sacrifice. We need to spend time on the sacred ground of that passage. That passage alone, if you truly meditate on it and think about it and focus your attention on it and just think about what Christ did in humbling himself to go from the glories of heaven to being spit upon and given the death of the worst criminals. What humility. There's not a person in this room who cannot learn from this passage. There's no person in here who, if you really took the time to dwell on what this passage is revealing and, and to see the glory of Christ being revealed and how He humbled Himself, it will drive you to humility. It will drive you to humility. Dwell on His example of humility. And that same humility took Jesus all the way to the cross. That's our fourth thing to dwell on is the cross. The cross. I mean, think about where would you be if He had not sacrificed Himself? Romans 5, 6 While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still helpless, unable to save ourselves, unable to do anything about our spiritual condition, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It's a humbling statement to think about. You are justified, reconciled, saved through no effort of your own. But only because a mighty loving God gave himself up for you. Without Christ, what hope would we have? We'd have none. So when you struggle with pride, think about the cross. It it can become a trite saying in churches because it's talked about a lot, but think about the cross. Isaac Watts depicts the idea so well when he says in his well-known hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, finish it with me, those of you who know it, my richest gain, account but loss, and poor contempt don't help him don't help him (laughs) poor contempt on all my pride he describes that as he considers the cross and who he was as a frail sinner before god that god is a great god that i am a sinful man and jesus came as a servant and died for me how could it not produce but my pride my pride is the the thing that put him up there isn't it Our pride, our selfishness, our self-worship. That is what Jesus came to eradicate and die for. And as I consider the sacrifice he made and how he humbled himself and the example that he is and the greatness of God and in that greatness to come down and do what he did for such a frail and helpless and physically weak and needy and sinful and proud human being that Jesus would do that, how could I not pour contempt on my pride? How could I not see that this is something that needs to be removed and and destroyed, eliminated, annihilated out of my life? When I consider and survey, think about, ponder the wondrous cross, then my pride is dashed against it. 
contemptible. John Newton said, I am a great sinner, but he's a great savior. One of my favorite lines from him. When you can embrace the truth of that statement, you're well on your way to killing pride. We don't have time, but a fifth truth is to dwell on others, just as Paul talked about in Philippians 2. Notice the one another's there. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. The more time you spend on focusing how to serve others, the less time you'll be spent focusing on how to serve yourself. And I would just ask you, how are you putting the interests of others before your own? Is this something that you think about very much? How active are you in considering? Let's start with your family. Start with your own home. How often do you think about ways to serve others, to give them preference, to give them honor? I know, ouch. (laughs) But start there. The less time you focus, the more time you focus serving them, the less time you'll focus serving yourself. And lastly, dwell on God's promise that He gives grace to the humble, that it is to the humble that draws His attention and His favor. And there's one more thing that we must not neglect if we would see humility grow in us, and that is to beg God for it. As I said earlier, we cannot deal with pride on our own. What you need to do is commit to meditate on these truths, these things to dwell on, dwell on who God is, dwell on who you are, dwell on Christ's example, dwell on the cross, dwell on God's promise, dwell on others. As you meditate and focus on those things, beg God to help that He would use them, those truths in your life, to help you Pursue humility. Jesus said to ask anything according to His will, and He hears us. Right? Is humility not according to His will? Is not unity the thing that Jesus prayed for? Humility is the gate that we must pass through in order to achieve true unity in our homes and in our church. That is the only way. That is where it begins. You know that night in the upper room, as the disciples had been bickering and I'm sure there was feelings and attitudes towards one another. And what did Jesus do? Remember what he did? Got up, walked over, grabbed a towel. Then he grabbed a water basin, put some water in it, went over, did what? We all know that story. What was Jesus showing us there? His humility. Those dirty, stinky, grungy feet of these bickering men who were exhibiting the very sin that Jesus was going to give himself up for in just a matter of hours. I mean, how easy or, you know, just Jesus would have been. So, you know what, guys? I've had it. I'm gone. I'm going to go out. I'm going to pray. You guys, you can just stay here bickering. He didn't do that. He cared enough for them that he would show them, men, this is not what I'm dying for. Be humble. Be a servant. You know, we serve a God who who doesn't simply bark out orders for us to be humble, but who is humble Himself. In the call to humility, God is simply saying, Be like Me. He's calling us to be like Him. If we would cast our gaze upon our humble Savior, our pride would be smashed at the foot of the cross. And I want to close our time by singing to God those words from Isaac Watts. Just to stand, to sing it as a prayer. If you know it, just bow your heads. If you don't, just find sing it looking up there. But 
But let's sing this and again think about these great truths. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and poor contempt on all my pride. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. Father, we thank you for sending your Son, for humbling, for that humility that he demonstrated. For sending Him that we might come to know You. And that finally, finally our, our pride could be dealt with and, and rooted out. And I pray, Lord, that You might do a work in us, in each of us, in our homes, in our, our church, in this community. Lord, that we would preserve and maintain and keep the unity for which the Spirit has brought about through the sacrifice of Christ. Lord, let these not just be words, nice-sounding spiritual statements and, and religious um, expressions, but may they be true of us. May, Lord, you mold and shape us into one unified body on the outside, for we know you've done that on the inside. Lord, may we live out these great truths. Help us to be humble, for without you we have no hope. We thank you. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.